Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 26, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by author, director, producer, documentarian, and archive curator Robert Bader. But first, a big thank you to everyone who came out to the Bastry Bistro last weekend for their Sunday supper celebrating Bond, James Bond, and our tribute to Casino Royale. Watch our YouTube channel and social media feeds for a new In The Mix segment, complete with complimenting cocktail, mucho movie trivia, and the Bistro special menu coming up next week. And I hope you enjoyed taking part in Pre-Code April as much as I did. The challenge was to watch and post about one Pre-Code film per day during the month, and I can say happily and exhaustively, I was successful. And thanks to our friend and favorite film critic from across the pond, Matthew Turner. Matthew is the brains behind the event and a wealth of knowledge on film and television. Make sure to follow Matthew's Twitter page at at filmfan1971 for his reviews and recommendations and pick up a copy of Matthew's book, What to Watch When, 1,000 TV shows for every mood and moment. We hope to see you next year for another Pre-Code April. And in case you missed it, last week we celebrated our 25th episode with an interview with actor, director, and Groucho Marx embodied Frank Ferrante. A wise man once said, there's no such thing as an old joke if you never heard it before. Well, same goes for podcasts, so once you finish this one, scroll down and join us for a lively hour celebrating the life and work of the one and only Groucho with Frank. Then go follow him on his Facebook page at at an evening with Groucho to keep up on the fun. And now we're delighted to continue our Marx Brothers celebration with today's guest, writer, producer, and director Robert Bader. Robert is curator of several important entertainment archives, including those of the estates of Bing Crosby, the Marx Brothers, and Danny Kaye. He also manages the archive of The Dick Cavett Show and serves on the board of directors for the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Marx Brothers Incorporated, and the Film Preservation Society. Through his own company, Cavalier Films, Robert produced and directed Ollie and Cavett, The Tale of the Tapes, which premiered in 2018 and was nominated for a Critics' Choice Award in 2020, the same year it debuted on HBO. The film chronicles Muhammad Ali's life and career through the lens of his many interviews with Dick Cavett and will be released on DVD this June. Robert co-wrote the film with Cavett, and his next archive project is a film about Mr. Cavett and Groucho Marx that will debut on PBS in 2022. Robert is also the author of Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, and editor of Groucho Marx and Other Short Stories and Tall Tales, an anthology of the comedian's lost writings. Robert has produced critically acclaimed television documentaries on Cavett's career for PBS, produced numerous archival DVD and CD releases, including five acclaimed DVD sets of The Dick Cavett Show, two of You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx, and two of Bing Crosby, the television specials. And he has worked both in radio and released CDs, including numerous Bing Crosby titles and the Rosemary Clooney CBS radio recordings. Robert has helmed countless other projects, shows, and films, and most recently launched Film Preservation Society's silent film restoration series on Blu-ray with the 1925 film Too Many Kisses, which features Harpo Marx. Welcome to the show, Robert. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, Robert, your resume is so long, I, where, where does somebody start? But uh, last week, we celebrated our 25th episode with a friend of yours, Frank Ferrante, and had a wonderful time talking about Groucho Marx and his influence. So let's stick with the Marx Brothers theme for now. Frank shared the story of how he first became aware of, as you call them in the title of your book, Four of the Three Musketeers, when he was a kid. Uh, can you tell us about your first encounter with the Marx Brothers and how they impacted you? Yeah, the interesting thing about my first encounter with the Marx Brothers was I didn't know they were the Marx Brothers until way, way after it was over, because uh, I was probably eight, nine years old when this happened. And I used to get dumped off at my grandmother's house on Saturdays uh, when my father would go to work. My brother and I couldn't be kept together because we fought like jackals. So I would get dumped over at my grandmother's house and she just parked me in front of the television set and she made me a grilled cheese sandwich and stuck me in front of the TV and I just turned it on and flipped through the channels on the old fashioned dial before we had remotes. And I saw what later turned out to be, as I learned, the puppet show sequence in monkey business. So I first saw Harpo doing the Punch and Judy show. And I said, oh, this is a good channel to stay on. Let's see where this goes. You know, it's the little kid and it's just, it looks cool and it's funny and he's cracking the guy over the head and it's pretty good. And I watched the rest of the film. And then it was over. And then I said, oh, well, that was cool. Didn't think about it again. 
maybe six months later, I'm at home and I put the TV on and I see that same guy from the Punch and Judy show chasing a turkey around a room with a bat, which is Harpo in room service. And I said, I got to figure out who this guy is and who these guys are. So at the end of the film, I saw the credits and then I looked in TV Guide to see what I had just watched. And I was interested in this. I went to the public library and I looked them up and I read everything I could find about them. And that was it. And I was hooked. And I started doing what everybody of my generation did back then. We would get the TV guide early in the week so we could take a red pen and circle everything that had anything to do with the Marx Brothers. So we would not miss anything. And I can remember doing crazy things like if a Marx Brothers movie was on at one o'clock in the morning, I'd put an alarm clock under my pillow so I could sneak out of my room and watch it. Every once in a while, I would do that with other movies. And one time I remember my dad strolling into the living room and saying, what the hell are you doing? It's two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Quiet, dad, the Marx Brothers are on. <laughs> and so he sat and watched it with me. And the next morning, neither one of us could wake up, you know? That's good parenting right there. That's Absolutely. <laughs> well, your book, uh, Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, focuses on a time period uh, from Groucho's debut in 1905 to their final live performance 40 years later, uh, scenes from A Night in Casablanca, 1945. And you focus a lot on their on their vaudeville years. So that time period has, has kind of been shrouded in a lot of mystery until you came along. Yet, according to your book, uh, the Marx Brothers are one of the most written about groups in Hollywood history. So what is it about them that is so intriguing to authors such as yourself, both then and now? I think what makes the Marx Brothers last has a lot to do with the quality of the writing. And the fact that they make it look like it's not even written is interesting because what separates the Marx Brothers from their contemporaries is really who wrote their films. You know, Wheeler and Woolsey even had S.J. Perlman on a film, you know, maybe one of their better ones. But the Marx Brothers consistently had guys like S.J. Perlman and George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskin, who's really a great writer who's kind of unheralded. But mm -hmm. these guys were the top-notch guys. Broadway hits were coming out of Kaufman and Riskin, uh, you know, Perlman is just one of the greatest humorists of all time. These guys were the top shelf. And it's why these films are still funny. And you could look at other films from the period, even some of the better W.C. Fields films, you know, they're a little dated. I love them, but mass audience is not going to rediscover W.C. Fields through those Paramount films. They're just crazy and zany and good. But the Marx Brothers are different, and it makes you want to know more about them. It makes you want to know more about the writers. I discovered a whole slew of writers that I ended up loving because they worked with the Marx Brothers or they knew the Marx Brothers. So I think the reason writers keep writing about the Marx Brothers is because the stuff is so well-written and so timeless. It's about what makes something funny it isn't about the period, the situation. It's about the people and the relationships. And ties it all back to vaudeville in, in my estimation, because in vaudeville, the Marx brothers fought against authority. It was a monopoly. I mean, a good chunk of my book is about the fact that to work in vaudeville, you had to sort of put yourself under the thumb of the monopoly. And when the Marx brothers would flout authority, they would legitimately get in trouble and risk their career. Once they were successful enough to do it, they kind of had a lot of fun with that. So the notion of always fighting authority comes right out of vaudeville. And it really does make them timeless. I, I usually use this in discussing something like the honeymooners, which I've also done some stuff with. The idea of that little cramped apartment and Ralph and Alice isn't really about Brooklyn in the 50s. It's about the relationship of a husband and a wife, which never ends. It doesn't matter if it's Bensonhurst in 1955 or wherever you are right now, it's still the relationship between a husband and a wife. That's why that's a timeless show. And the Marx Brothers remain timeless because of the fight against authority, which never ends. To your point, it's, it's, it's a layered approach in a way, because there's slapstick and there's you know, these kind of one layer, one dimensional uh, things. But the Marx Brothers along with some of the other greats that you find are timeless, usually are more complex like that. There's, there's issues uh, behind it. There's, you know, some of the, some of the slapstick and some of the other stuff on top, but it's, but when you peel the onion back, you get to those layers where it really means something and strikes at somebody at a much deeper level. Yeah. And don't think the Marx Brothers completely ignore slapstick. 
It's just that you'll get slapstick maybe with a really good line attached to it. I, I just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of one like, uh, I'll teach you to kick me. You don't have to teach me. I know how. And he kicks the guy. Yeah. It's better than just <laughs> kicking the guy. <laughs> it, they, they wrote a line for it. Well, speaking of great writers, Groucho was quite a writer, and uh, and you're quite a writer. For the Three Musketeers isn't your first book with Marx in the title. You released uh, Groucho Marx and other short stories and tall tales in 1993, which I've got on my shelf upstairs, uh, based on, which I found really interesting, all of the unofficial research you'd done yourself up to that point, not knowing that it would eventually turn into your second book. So along with obviously myriad other talents and accomplishments. Groucho was uh, prolific, especially for a guy who, you know, didn't finish elementary school. I've even heard that he considered himself a writer first. How has his writing specifically influenced you uh, as an author? Well, I wouldn't say I, I couldn't be as funny as Groucho if I tried. And if I tried, I'd probably fail miserably. I just enjoy it so much. Because of Groucho, I came to appreciate James Thurber and S.J. Perlman and most particularly Robert Benchley, he's the god of that type of writing. And there's a great line, I believe it was Thurber who actually wrote this, you could sit up all night trying to write a brilliant humor piece and think you've got it, and then you realize you've just written something that Benchley did in 1919. <laughs> he was that guy. And Groucho really idolized these guys. And that whole period is so interesting to me. And the thing about Groucho's writing that really got me is, it was out of character. He was not the Groucho of the movies who would go slap Ambassador Trentino and start a war. He was a self-deprecating character. He created a little character for himself in his writing. And I liked it. I really enjoyed it. And the more I read of it, the more I liked it. And I just kind of started collecting it. And it wasn't with the intention of collecting it as a book at first. But there's an interesting thing when you're a little kid who's maybe 10, 11, 13, 15, and you start to have this pile of clippings in your room and all these weird old books, and it starts to accumulate. And people say, what the hell are you doing with all this stuff? And the best answer I could come up with was, well, I'm working on a book. <laughs> and it was my excuse for why I was collecting all this stuff and trying to prevent, you know, maybe like an angry brother or cousin from you know, taking it out and burning it to piss me off. So I just said, it's a book. It'll be a book someday. And when I had accumulated quite enough of it, I started thinking of ways to actually structure it as a book. So you're very kind to say that I wrote that book or that I did that book. I would say 75% of that book was written by Groucho, and I'm kind of riding on his coattails in it. <laughs> but uh, it was fun to get that out because it got attention that Groucho would have loved because he wanted to be recognized as a writer. Yes. And when the Marx Brothers started to kind of fade into the sunset, he thought he would just become a writer. He didn't realize that there would be this whole second act in his career with You Bet Your Life and all that stuff and television. I mean, he just kept going on and on. And when the Marx Brothers retired for the first time in 1941, he just dedicated himself to writing. And, you know, he was getting his stuff published in the Broadway period, even a little bit in the vaudeville period, just little blurbs he would send into the columns, little bits of humor, a little joke here and there, and a few longer pieces. But then when he was really famous, he would get pieces in the Saturday Evening Post and Collier's, you know, some of the bigger magazines of the day. Those pieces are pretty damn good. And uh, I thought they belonged in one place. And I was fortunate enough to get the book reissued as an expanded paperback in 2011. So the version that's out there now has a bunch of extra things in it that I found either after that book was published or that I didn't fit into the uh, original version of it. But yeah, I just enjoyed it. So I'm glad to get it out there. And I always said the reason I wrote for The Three Musketeers is because I waited for years for someone else to write it and they didn't. I wanted to read a book about their vaudeville career. As a, as a writer, uh, from a stylistic approach, musicians usually stand on you know almost stand on top of the shoulders of the musicians that came before them from from a style perspective influences and things like that is it the same as an author that as you read other authors and do, do they all inform the style of writing that you employ in your books my style i don't know that i have a style of writing because I, I the only book i've written is really for the three musketeers i edited groucho marks and other short stories and tall tales I took this approach. I'm also a documentary filmmaker, as you mentioned, and I took the approach that I was going to treat for the Three Musketeers structurally, as I was putting it together, 
like it was a documentary film. So I went and found all my source material and just lined it up like what I was doing the framework of a film. And it sort of worked because I enjoyed reading it that way, having it laid out with these lengthy quotes from my sources. And it sort of worked because there weren't any firsthand people to interview who saw the Marx Brothers in vaudeville. I mean, I got to speak to a few of those people 30 years ago. And I have interviews that I conducted as much as 30, 35 years ago. But it seemed to almost work like a documentary in book form. And that's kind of the approach I took. I'm not sure that there'll ever be another reason for me to do that in a book again if I ever get around to writing another book that's not about the Marx Brothers, because I'm presently working on two more about them. It sounds like you also approached your research for the book almost the same way a documentarian would do in the way that you traveled. You followed in their footsteps. You went from little city to small, you know, all over the country and ended up in a lot of interesting places that they had played. Can you tell us maybe a story from uh, from the road? Oh, God, uh, that was sort of a crazy decision. I had this idea that I wanted to list every date they played in vaudeville. And I'm not sure what made me so obsessive about that. But it occurred to me that there are people who have difficulty putting together the tour dates of a rock band from the 70s. <laughs> and I've, I've had some friends do that kind of research and I've helped them with that. And they're saying, geez, I can't find where you know Led Zeppelin played three weeks after they played Denver in 1969. I said, if that's hard to do, how am I going to find out where the Marx Brothers were in 1911? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing is, there's newspapers and libraries everywhere that you can't find on the internet. And when I started doing this, there was no internet, at least that we knew of. And I really started digging this up because I, I, was, I lived in New York City. I had the New York Public Library at my fingertips. That was a big help. So I was able to go in there and track a lot of stuff. And what really became one of the more interesting aspects of it, you ask about road travels. In order to figure out how the vaudeville circuits were laid out when I first started doing this, I needed to learn about the railroad systems around the country. And I became almost an expert on American railroad history, including things you'll find in the book, like the two cent rule and all these nonsensical things about if you cross state lines, you pay an extra fare. And that's why you'd see the Marx Brothers play like six dates in Pennsylvania, then cross into Ohio. And on the way back, maybe play Pennsylvania games. They can't go back and forth because it'll cost too much. Hmm. I learned this nonsense. And then I figured out that the vaudeville circuits got laid out along where the train stations were. When a town got a train station in 1900, 1904, whenever, the first thing they would do is build a little town around it if it was out in the middle of nowhere. They would build a general store, a post office, a saloon, a whorehouse, a church, you know, not in that order, but the things that a town <laughs> must have. And one of those things was a theater. And they started springing up when the guys were building the railroad. There was entertainment for the guys who were building the railroad. And the circuits got developed out of that. And once I learned that, I was buying railroad timetables for all the different parts of the country from this period. And not knowing I was creating a collection of that stuff, it helped me track them. So it's easy to say, I'm going to go to every library in the country and find the Marx Brothers. But what you can't really do is, you know, figure out you have like, you know, three days in Pittsburgh or something and just read every newspaper for a 21 year period. You've got to kind of figure out what part of the country they're in and when. So the railroad timetables made that possible. I'm sure this would be a lot easier to start doing right now, but I still have hundreds of dates listed in that book that you cannot find on any newspaper search. You have to actually get into the pits and go to the library. Interesting. It's really an investigation, almost like detective work. And that's why it took so many years for the book to be, <laughs> because I had this, I had written 90% of the book and I still said, I can't publish it until I fill in all the gaps in these touring schedules. So the book probably could have come out and been very good in, 2012, 13, maybe, but it didn't come out until 2016 because I just couldn't have that many gaps in the touring schedule. I was just obsessing about it. <laughs> well, we're glad you did. Yeah. So you, so you credit many people along the way uh, that have helped you, including members of the Marx family, Jerry Seinfeld, who opened his personal photo archives to you, uh, many of those making their way into the book, and also your friend and, and collaborator, Dick Cavett. Uh, some of Groucho's best interviews took place with with Mr. Cavan. In fact, you know, one of the best interviewers of, of all time, uh, definitely we're both, Matt and I are both fans of, of Dick Cavett's for sure. Indeed. They both, uh, Groucho and, and Cavett, have famously quick minds and a mutual respect, which is always visible uh, through their the, the way they would interact on stage and, and their back and forth. You have a project upcoming 
focusing on the relationship between Groucho and, and Dick Cavett. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it's I'm just about finishing it. It's a film that'll be on uh, PBS probably early next year. I'm not sure what their schedule looks like, but they're playing a film. It's uh, basically going to be about Groucho's years on the Dick Cavett show, his friendship with Cavett, which is basically the last 16 years of Groucho's life. And it's charming. I mean, I'm very, very proud of the film. And it's not just because I love Groucho. I also love Dick Cavett. And it's very interesting for me to watch him look back at that. And the interview he did for the film is marvelous. And he has a different perspective on it. But I love this phrase that he likes to use. He says, I'm glad that we had Groucho on the show because I think we captured the last of Groucho's greatness. And it's, it's so well put because Groucho was pretty compromised in the years after he did those Dick Cavett shows. He was on the Dick Cavett show seven times, uh, twice on his morning show, once on his 60-minute summer primetime show, and four times on the late-night show. And the last appearance Groucho made was December of 71. And if you look at any of the TV appearances Groucho did after that, he starts to get a little shaky, even his tour in 72 when he played Carnegie Hall and played San Francisco and L.A. and the one show he did in Iowa. He's kind of a little rocky in some of that stuff, but he's not at all compromised on any of his Dick Cavett shows. He gets a little strange and obtuse on some of them, <laughs> but he's physically good and he's very, very sound. So I think Dick is right when he says it's the last of Groucho's greatness. There are good things after it for sure. But as a library of consistently great interviews, there's nothing better. Do you think that it had something to do with two sharp minds sharpening each other? Do you think that the presence of, of Mr. Cavett perhaps brought out the best in Groucho in those instances? I think you could make a case for that. But I just also think it comes down to this very simple thing. Groucho really liked him mm -hmm. even before he had a show. Uh, Groucho and Cavett met quite famously now because it's on the introduction to an interview with Groucho that Cavett gave at Carnegie Hall. They met when Cavett went to the funeral of George S. Kaufman in 1961. And that's explored in the film and with a little more detail than had been previously known. But when Cavett was a writer for Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, he got a chance when Groucho guest hosted The Tonight Show to write for him. And that's really when they became close. And when Cavett became a stand-up comedian, he left the Carson gig at The Tonight Show as a writer, and he started appearing on television doing stand-up, and he got a letter from Groucho giving him some pointers, more or less, about his stand-up act. Wow. I don't want to give away everything that's really cool in the film, but that was a big, big moment for Cavett. He's getting a letter of encouragement from Groucho Marx on a stand-up routine he did on television. That didn't happen to anybody else. I mean, Groucho was supportive of comedians, but in the 60s, I don't think he was watching a lot of television and writing letters to comedians about how to hone their act. So there was something special that he saw in Cabot. And, you know, Cabot was, you know, a very bright young mind. And Groucho, of course, appreciated that. They wrote letters together. Groucho loved getting a good letter that was well-written and funny, and Cavett did that. And uh, it was really a wonderful relationship for both of them. Well, and speaking of relationships, uh, as with Groucho, there was another sharp, witty, staggeringly intelligent man that Mr. Cavett was close to, and that was Muhammad Ali. So you co-wrote, directed, and produced the superb documentary, Ali and Cab at the Tales of the Tape, currently on HBO, which is where I saw it, and available on DVD, we're glad to say, in June. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. So Thank you. how did the project come about, and um, why was it so important to Mr. Cabot to tell Ali's story like this? Well, uh, first thing I'll say about the DVDs, it's going to have an hour of additional material. It's not enough. Great. Look forward to that. Yeah. There's stuff coming on the extras. Also, I decided this would be a great film to make based on reading these two articles Dick wrote for the New York Times blog that he was doing about his relationship with Ali, that he wrote some of those blogs about Groucho, and he even wrote one about me and my research on Groucho, which I'm proud to say is collected in one of his books. So uh, I've at least made it to that level. So <laughs> I'm in a Dick Cabot book. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So the idea came from the film because I had thought about doing a Groucho and Cabot thing a long time ago. 
And I said, how am I going to do that? What's that going to be like? And I sort of, you know, kind of put it onto the side. And when I read these New York Times blogs that he wrote about Ali, it became crystal clear to me how this would be a really good film because of the content of those interviews. It's basically the most important decade of Ali's career in life. Yeah. As spoken on the Dick Cavett show. Right. He was going on a lot of talk shows, but he didn't get to say the things he said on the Cavett show in every place. And there's a really interesting scenario where other documentary filmmakers are now doing Ali films. There's a couple of big people doing them uh, probably a couple of years away, but they're sort of looking at my film as like a source for footage. And, you know, the Cavett library is going to be licensing a lot of Ali footage. So I've kind of inadvertently made an advertisement for the <laughs> Cavett library licensing business with that film, which is great. You know, I mean, I do manage it. So it's really fun for that to happen. But those two articles were inspirational in that I said, I see how to do this because the friendship is what those interviews hang on. He's not going on another talk show and talking about what he feels about the plight of the people suffering in the inner cities. And he, he's not guilty about making a lot of money, but he feels like there's something wrong that other people can't and they're held back. He was really, really honest. His true feelings are all over that film. And the biggest problem I had with that film was not having it be four hours long, to be honest with you. It was really like cutting stuff out of the longer rough cut of that film was like choosing which finger I wanted to lose. There was so much great stuff in there. Yeah, I don't know how you did it. One thing that I especially enjoyed was the progression, because at first... Uh, Mr. Cabot was a little a little wary of some of the stuff that Ali was saying on the program. And then as their relationship progressed, he started to realize this man is not only sharp as a whip, but he is he is genuine. He believes these things and he is uh, a really a force uh, for good. Well, I think what's really critical is the early interviews with Ali and Cabot. He let him speak his piece. When he disagreed with him, he told him. Right. As opposed to another interviewer on television who simply wouldn't have him back on the show. You know, I'm not going to mention his name. It was David Suskind. But <laughs> I stole that from Groucho because he was on the Cabot show. And he says, I was on some other show. I won't say what show. It was the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> so, but other talk shows were afraid of Ali. The networks yeah. didn't want that kind of controversy on. And the first time Ali was on the Cavett show was actually the very first Dick Cavett show when he got the morning show. And it was controversial because they taped it a week in advance. They taped a week of shows after Cavett did a bunch of test shows that never aired. And when they were going to put this show on, the network said, we can't run that as the debut show. So they ran the second show as the debut and they ran the Ali show the second day. And a network executive went to Cavett and said, nobody gives a goddamn about what Muhammad Ali thinks about the war. And Cavett was stunned by that. And then the reviews of the first week of shows were like, yeah, lukewarm first day, but he really hit his stride on the second day. You know, that would have been his opening day review if they'd run the right show. But Ali was given a forum that he didn't get elsewhere. And the networks were pretty tough about that. You know, there was, you know, he couldn't say Nation of Islam on network television unless it was on the news and they were being torn down or they were burning something. Yeah. They had to refer to it without saying it, which is really interesting to me. It was kind of like on I Love Lucy, they couldn't say she was pregnant. She was expecting. In 1968, 69, you couldn't say Nation of Islam. You said Black Muslims. Strange, but that's what, that's what it was. That was the landscape they were in. But I think Ali kept coming back because Cabot gave him a fair shake. And one of my favorite things is when he lost the Frazier fight in 71, he comes on right after it and he's all swollen. And yeah, there's a, I come on because this is the, you know, the only show that has me on after I get whooped. Now, every show would have loved to have had him. Yeah. And he came on after Ken Norton broke his jaw with his jaw wired shut. Yeah. And again, you know, I like, come on because you invite me on after I get whooped. I mean, just think about that. Wouldn't every show have wanted Muhammad Ali on at that moment? <laughs> But where did he go? <laughs> he just appreciated Cavett for giving him the forum and for it being honest. And they did become friends. So one of the things about Cavett, I think, that's so impressive or, or so resonating is the conversational style we've talked about. And it brings to mind an interview I saw with Gore Vidal when he was on Johnny Carson one night. And 
Gore Vidal just stopped the conversation and said, do you remember, Johnny, when we used to just sit here for an hour with a newspaper and just talk? I started to think about that. Everything in every talk show you see these days is a shtick. You know, it's, it's the talk show host that's feeding something to the guest about, I heard you were just in New York. Did anything strange happen? And then it's a five-minute shtick about something that happened in New York. Do you think that the art of kind of the conversational interviewer is is lost at this point? Do you think that that's just something that we're never going to see again? Yeah, I think it's over because you know an appearance on a network talk show now amounts to six or eight minutes of talking about your newest movie and then you're done. And if you have a funny story, they'll talk about it in the pre-interview. It's a different world and everything is a little faster and people don't have the attention span. Imagine this. There was a point in the early 70s when the Cabot Show started doing a full 90 minutes with the guests. Right. You get 90 minutes with Orson Welles or 90 minutes with Bob Hope. It's quite amazing because by about 30 minutes in, the guest has run out of prepared talk show fodder and you get the real guy. Yeah. And you learn so much about these people. And that is the material that documentarians just drew over because that's where you get the great sound bites that people like to use in films. It's almost an embarrassment of riches for me because I work with the Cabot Archive. I know it pretty well. And when I put together the Groucho film, I'd seen those shows so many times. I think my first rough cut came together in about three hours because I just knew the stuff so well. And Groucho is just a soundbite machine. I mean, he just keeps saying great stuff. You can't stop them. <laughs> well, we're at 30 minutes right now, so I guess we're approaching that period of getting the real Robert Bader, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying there really is a real Robert Bader, but we'll find out. <laughs> Our guest is author, producer, and director Robert Bader. When we come back, we'll learn more about Robert's work as curator of several important entertainment archives, including those of the estates of Bing Crosby, the Marx Brothers, and Danny Kaye, and the archive of The Dick Cavett Show. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is Friday, April 30th, the birthday of television and film actor and director. And we're extremely excited to announce our guest next week for episode 27, Perry King. Perry attended Yale and Juilliard, where he studied with Orson Welles' production partner and collaborator, John Hausman, and at the Stella Adler School of Acting before making his film debut in the 1972 film Slaughterhouse-Five. Perry auditioned for the role of Han Solo in Star Wars, and after the role went to Harrison Ford, played Solo in the radio adaptations of all three original films. In 1984, King was nominated for a Golden Globe for the TV movie The Hasty Heart, and the same year he landed the role of Cody Allen on the series Riptide, which he appeared in from 1983 to 1986. In the mid-90s, Perry star starred in the television adaptation of A Stranger in the Mirror and appeared on Melrose Place. He also appeared in the NBC TV series Titans in 2000 and as the President of the United States in the 2004 film The Day After Tomorrow. King has also worked extensively as a voice actor and appeared on Spin City, Will and Grace, Eve, and Cold Case. His directorial debut, The Divide, in which he also starred, won 16 film festival awards and appeared at the Cannes Film Festival in 2018. This is an interview you don't want to miss with a man who knows show business inside and out. That's next Friday, May 7th with Perry King. That is quite a resume. And speaking of resumes, our guest today is Robert Bader, a man tasked with curating the entertainment archives of some of the biggest stars of classic Hollywood. So we spent a lot of time, Robert, talking on the podcast about the show and show business. But the second part of that, the bit we don't we don't talk much about the business part, which is just as important as as the show part. And in some ways, maybe even more so. So you have uh, expertise or experience in a specific area of that business, which, which is one we don't necessarily think about every day. And that's managing the archives of classic acts such as Bing Crosby, the Marx Brothers, Danny Kaye, as well as what we've talked about in the first part of the show, the, the archives of the Dick Cavett show. So how did you get involved in doing that? And which was the first archive that you took over? kind of management of? Well, the first time I did it as a job was actually with Bing Crosby, which I've been doing now for about 13 years. But I had some background before that in working at a record company and trying to acquire uh, a state-owned content for the early days of DVD, actually. When DVD was a new thing, 
I was out there looking for material that we could put out in collections and get some classic television and things like that out there. And I met a lot of interesting folks. I did a really unusual project with um, the third ex-wife of Johnny Carson, which was an interesting <laughs> experience. Was that a Joanna? No, Joanne. Joanne okay. You know, well, all of his wives' names began with J. There was Jody, Joanne, Joanna, and then there was one he married without a J later. So they didn't have to change the towels when he... Well, that's the, the Bob Newhart line is what yeah. you're going for. Right? <laughs> Bob Newhart was on The Tonight Show in between Johnny's divorces when he found out he was marrying Joanna. He said, this guy just won't go for new towels. <laughs> <laughs> but I met Joanne Carson through a very interesting phone call. The record company I'm talking about was, is called Shout Factory. They're still very much a concern. And I had my office there and I was putting out the first of the Dick Cavett Show DVDs. And my phone rings and... It's the reception saying, there's somebody on the phone who wants to talk to the guy that makes the Dick Cavett DVDs. I said, all right, it's probably some fan who's upset that I didn't put out the show they want, you know. Uh, but no, it was actually Joanne Carson. And she says, I have some of Johnny's shows in my garage. Why don't you put them out? Wow. And the first thing that went through my mind is, well, who owns the rights to those shows? It gets a little tricky because... This was not Johnny's estate. This was one of his ex-wives who just happened to have a collection of kinescopes of his shows from the 50s, which were no longer under copyright. And, you know, his estate didn't own them and she had the only copies of them. So uh, I went and saw them, got them cleaned up. And we put on a nice little two disc set of Johnny's early television stuff. And it was quite successful. And it inspired me to try and find other people like Joanne Carson, who had garages full of stuff. And through, you know, through my experience doing that and a couple of other little estate projects, I got involved back in 2002, I guess it was, with the uh, Gleason estate. I worked on a Honeymooners 50th anniversary television show, which led me to, you know, for the 60th anniversary, I put together the complete Honeymooners Lost episodes, which was a real archive search project because not all of them were thought to exist. There's still a few missing, but I found some of the missing kinescopes and some of the early ones in private collections and in just different archives around the country. So, you know, it became almost like you said earlier, it's like detective work. I just love looking for the stuff. And I've got, you know, several colleagues who do the same thing. And, you know, we sometimes compare notes and we talk about the weirdest places we find things, perhaps the strangest archival find of my career was right in Bing Crosby's basement where I found a kinescope of game seven of the 1960 World Series, which is a game that is regarded in baseball circles as the greatest game ever played. And if you're a Yankee fan, I'm really sorry, but uh, <laughs> I did find the game where Bill Mazeroski hits the World Series ending home run. <laughs> and as, as a Mets fan, I'm pleased to say that the Yankees lose. And they'll lose every time you watch it. Great. <laughs> but that film sat there because Bing Crosby had a kinescope of it made because he was in Europe for the 1960 Olympics and he was recording in Paris and he didn't want to miss the game. Wow. And he had a company make him a kinescope of it. And the tape of the game was erased a couple of days later by NBC. So there was no copy of this game. It was a highlight film, but that was it. And um, we worked with Major League Baseball to get that on the Major League Baseball television network. And it was a big deal. Bing was on the front page of every paper in the country for a couple of days. So it was a great way to raise his profile shortly after I started working for the estate. And it's a great find. It's, you, know, you never know what you're going to find in somebody's film collection that hasn't been gone through in 50, 60 years. I was wondering about that because I saw that his house in... I think it's in California, was just listed. Hillsborough, but it's not the one that his wife still lives in. It's a house that he lived in very briefly when he first moved to the Bay Area. And they uh, only lived there for maybe a year or two. And uh, he hadn't lived in it since then. So it hadn't been his house since the mid-60s. Matt and I were thinking of moving the the Highland Haver headquarters there into the, uh, it's like a hidden speakeasy and all kinds of cool stuff in there. Well, Hillsboro is a nice neighborhood if you can afford it. So uh, I would say go for it. It'll, it'll mean you're doing really well. <laughs> We're only a couple bucks short. So, Robert, you, you talked about uh, taking kinescopes and converting them uh, to DVDs, et cetera. I'm wondering what kind of other uh, media and intellectual property do you oversee? And what kind of projects generally request materials from you? I assume a lot of uh, documentary filmmakers. Well, yeah. Uh, in, in the world of Dick Cavett's archive, it's documentaries 
every week are coming. And, you know, more documentaries are being made right now than I think in any other time in history, because we've reached a point where people can make them at home themselves. And their biggest expense is actually the licensing. I mean, I, I edited the Ali film at home by myself. It's a definite good turn. But the other problem is there's so much content that the places where you screen documentaries are paying less for them because there's so many of them. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. But we get documentary requests for Cabot footage almost daily. It's really robust. The other thing that I do mostly with intellectual property is I manage the music catalog of Bing Crosby, which in addition to the 1,200 or so masters he cut for Decca Records that are with Universal Music Group, there's about close to 4,000 masters in Bing Crosby's archive that he owns, including early radio stuff, but also some of the earliest stuff recorded on tape with really pristine fidelity starting in the mid-40s. And we use that stuff on CDs. Well, CDs are not quite as big as they were even a few years ago, but we do digital releases here and there. And like last year, uh, two years ago, I should say, we did... um, a Christmas album with the London Symphony Orchestra where we isolated some vocals and had a new backing made because the technology now allows for that. We have multi-tracks from the later part of Bing's career where you can isolate the vocals quite easily because they're on a separate track. And we have that going back to the early 60s in some cases. But those recordings that are really high quality from the 40s and 50s, there's now technology where we can pull the vocal out and have the London Symphony Orchestra make a new backing track. And that might not be everybody's cup of tea if they're a purist, but it does expose you to a new audience. And being a Christmas album made it to the top 10 in the album charts. So there's some people out there that really loved it. It may not be the best thing for the Crosby fanatic who just wants the original recordings, but we're making those available too. We're not deleting the original recordings from his catalog by any stretch. So we just try to give something a little different to keep the interest in him alive. So yeah, along those lines, so a few years ago, I think it was on Sirius XM, you had Bing Crosby Christmas Radio, and then it moved to the Bing Crosby site that you oversee. And so and that's one of the things that I do. I think Thanksgiving, I switch over to that, and it's just steadily running. And there's a number of things on there, things that I had never heard before. I mean, how does that work? How do you decide what to release, things that you control or release to people who ask for them, for their projects, and then do you ever worry about overexposure? Well, of course, you don't want to oversaturate the market in anything you do. That's true of just about any entertainment media. But with Bing, with the radio channel, which runs 24-7 all the time on the website, we just turn it over to Christmas right after Thanksgiving, and we let it go a little past New Year's. Some people want the Christmas radio to go until about middle of (laughs) February. I I get We used to turn it off and go back to normal programming, like around January 4th, and I was getting complaints. So we let it go a little later. And then people were saying, like, when it was on Sirius, it used to start, like, I think December 2nd or 3rd or something. And we just start running it at Thanksgiving. Now, they didn't want to do the channel anymore, so we were disappointed, but uh, we just do it on the website. Um, I'm hoping they'll pick it up again someday. They just like to change content all the time. We just like to do all Bing all the time on our website. Which shows do I pick? All the ones that sound good. Uh, We have some early shows that are just really rough air transcriptions that you wouldn't enjoy them if I put them on the website. So I try to put all the good sounding ones on there. We're we're changing it a little bit. I'm going to do some programming updates to it soon. Uh, I was running a whole bunch of radio documentaries on there and people actually wrote in and said, there's no continuity to it. Sometimes you just randomly hear one, you really hear another one and, you know, so I'm figuring out a better way to present those that I'll put them back into the rotation. But it's it's fun to be able to program it because with Bing, there's just no end to it. You could listen to it for like months and never hear the same thing. Yeah, and it's just it's just great stuff and, and different versions and uh, original masters and and different. You know, you mentioned with orchestras, so you could hear one song, fifty different. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating fifty different ways, but a number of different ways. It's, it's funny you said that. I was actually trying to figure out what I had the most versions of from radio and masters. And it's, I'm not a hundred percent true. I think it's swinging on a star. I think I counted a dozen versions of swinging on a star. For multiple decades, I take it. No, actually not. Uh, Mostly concentrated within the time of the record's release when he did it on his radio show, because it was a hit. He did it like every week for about, you know, 
or two months. And then he did it on television a couple of times. So there's a lot of versions of Sweet on the Star. There's probably a few other ones. Um, I think we got a lot of versions of I'm an old cowhand. You know, it's yeah, he be his hits, he did them a lot, you know, a lot. Well, boy, we have covered some heavy hitters, Crosby and Cavett and Ali and the Marx Brothers. And there's one more entertainer, and that's that's what I'm going to refer to him, um, because he certainly was. As an amateur cartoonist for decades, I, like everybody who's ever put pen to paper, knows The Lion King, Al Hirschfeld. So you're executive director of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about the foundation itself and then how you got involved and uh, some of the work that they do uh, to help promote theater and the dramatic arts? Yeah. Um, first of all, there's a couple of very talented people who run these programs, and it's mostly an educational charity type of thing. It's a nonprofit, and all of its proceeds go into these educational initiatives, usually involving theater and you know, use of Hirschfeld's art. And I'll just mention a couple of names. Uh, David Leopold and Catherine Marshall Eastman are the very talented people who run this stuff. I'm sort of an intellectual property overseer. I don't do any of the real creative stuff there. Uh, we kick around ideas together, but they do the real work. I do things like make sure nobody rips them off. I think they brought me in as sort of a watchdog. But uh, my, my involvement goes back to having met Al Hirschfeld when I was 14 years old. I was a very uh, involved kid when it comes to the Marx Brothers and Hirschfeld and all that stuff. And my parents were incredibly indulgent people and they tolerated my weirdness very well and as a gift they got me the first Hirschfeld lithograph of the Marx Brothers. Wow. And I looked at the uh, the receipt for it recently so I know when it was it was in February of 1975 and when it was ready and Hirschfeld was signing the prints they said we could go pick it up at a gallery in New York and my mom and I hopped on the bus and went and got it and there he was signing them and he met me and he was very, very polite and kind and wonderful. In fact, he offered to personally inscribe it to me, which he did. And subsequently did that for all the other prints of the Marx Brothers that I acquired. And he gave me a book that they were selling at the gallery. He just gave it to me because I think he was just so impressed that a little kid was such a fan. Yeah. Gave me a book called The World of Hirschfeld, which was like biblical for me as a kid. I mean, if you could imagine memorizing a book of drawings, I did. And I just was in love with Hirschfeld from that moment. I liked him before that, but then the bonus was that he was a great guy. And years and years later, I was asked by David, who's an old friend of mine, we go back quite a long ways, uh, if I would be willing to help them with some intellectual property work and do some of the things I do for people like Bing Crosby and the Marx Brothers and Danny Kaye, if I would do that for Al Hirschfeld, and of course I would. So it's, it's a real joy to be on the board of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. It's just a cool thing to do. And I feel, uh, you know, how could you say no to Al Hirschfeld? You know, I mean, he's just the best. So the work is fun. Um, it's occasionally unpleasant when it's about you ripped off Hirschfeld, you didn't pay for that, and you got to license this. To, you know, that's sort of the ugly part of intellectual property. People want everything for nothing. And, you know, there's a reason that not everything under the sun is in the public domain. People do have rights. So that's part of the job. And it's part that nobody else on the board wants to do. So they brought me in. Speaking, speaking of Al, though, in the, in the Disney movie Fantasia 2000, they did a segment Rhapsody in Blue, which was done in the Hirschfeld style of, of animation, the, the, the line art and things like that. To do something like that, that's not a duplicate of his work, but in his style, is there anything that an artist has to go through from a permissions or licensing or anything like that? Well, most importantly, in that case, Hirschfeld was involved with it. I actually was lucky enough to go to the world premiere of Fantasia 2000 at Carnegie Hall. And I had this incredible moment. I, I, I got to do something so weird. I introduced Al Hirschfeld to Keith Richards. Wow. And I said, Al, you drew this guy. And he goes, did I? <laughs> One of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> How could you not draw Keith? <laughs> I guess I did draw that guy. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre because Keith was looking like his Pirates of the Caribbean thing with the stuff in his hair. It was a really weird look. And Herschel just didn't recognize him as a guy he'd ever drawn. But he did draw many, many years before. But that 
premiere was a surreal thing. A friend of mine who was working for Disney was running the red carpet, and he kind of snuck me in under the uh, table there. But it was just a weird thing because I had actually met Keith Richards. I back in my former life, a video editor, and I was involved in the videos for his first solo album, so I had met him before, and. Uh, it was just a crazy uh, moment, Al Hirschfeld and Keith Richards. But Al worked with the Disney animators, and that is an animation of his book, uh, Harlem is Seen by Hirschfeld, which for many years was an incredibly rare book to get. It was a big limited edition thing with lithographs in it that could be pulled out and framed. So finding an intact copy of the book was hard. It got reissued in paperback several years ago, so you can actually get it and see it. But the characters you see in Fantasia 2000 come from his Harlem collection, and it's it's done really, really well. I mean, Fantasia 2000, if I watch any of it at this point, I watch that sequence. The rest of it, I'm sure, is good. I'm in for the Hirschfeld sequence. It, it is a, a beautiful movie, and I was lamenting that that concept of animation and orchestration together that was originally Walt Disney's plan to have as a, as a living thing and changing thing and a, yeah. a touring thing. Uh, just never, it never happened other than Fantasia 2000, which I thought was a good homage or, or sequel to, to the original. But yeah, that's one of the highlights uh, for me too, that segment. But, you know, just know that Hirschfeld not only blessed it, he worked on it. I mean, he was there with those guys. I mean, he went out to the, the Disney animation people. He came out to California way back, and he was doing seminars with these guys. I mean, they love him. And that's probably why it seems it's, it's, it's so authentic, because it is. Yeah, if Al Hirschfeld was making movies, that's what they'd look like. Well, thank you, Robert. Thanks again for joining us. It's just been a real pleasure and great to meet you. And uh, we'll look forward to connecting with you guys again soon. Definitely. Yeah, this is great. I had a lot of fun and you made it very, very painless. I appreciate that. That's what we like to hear. Well, thank you to our guest, Robert Bader. Visit MarksBrothers.net for more information about his books, including four of the three Musketeers, the Marx Brothers on stage. And make sure to watch for his documentary, Ali and Cavett, The Tale of the Tapes, available on DVD this June and streaming now on HBO. You can get more information about the great work the Al Hirschfeld Foundation is doing at alhirschfeldfoundation.com and visit filmpreservationsociety.org to pick up a copy of the recently restored Too Many Kisses, the screen debut of Harpo Marx on Blu-ray, all linked in the show notes. And don't forget to join us next week, Friday, May 7th, when we'll be joined by longtime actor and director of the award-winning film The Divide, screened at the Cannes Film Festival in 2018, Perry King. Perry is a veteran of both film and television, and we'll find out next week what it was like auditioning for the role of Han Solo, working with Michael J. Fox, and training with both John Hausman and Stella Adler. That's next Friday, May 7th. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. If you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. And we'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. So until the footlights come up again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us, as always, on Heilman and Haver. 